Hey folks, Norm here. So you've heard me talk about it a lot here on social media, in our newsletter. By the way, if you're not signed up to that, shame on you. Go to Drabblecast.org and get hooked up so you know what's going down. Our Kickstarter to relaunch the Drabblecast happened Friday. And get this, in a single day, we met over half of our $30,000 goal. Holy crap, right? Just under $16,000 raised in a single day, thanks to you weirdos out there who love strange stories and our podcast. If you haven't visited our Kickstarter page yet and you haven't had a chance to see all the cool stuff we're offering, from new illustrated print anthologies to Drabblecast mugs, t-shirts, we have a cool Drabble flask, a Drabblecast flask, a Drabblecast original full-color children's book about parasites, a five-and-a-half-pound hand-forged cast-iron Drabblecast tentacle, a custom Drabblecast banjo, sponsor an episode or get a promo in, help produce a full episode of the Drabblecast, we've even got an original commissioned piece of art from our art director, Bo Kyer, and an original commissioned song by yours truly. All of it's listed out in our Drabblecast Reborn Kickstarter link that you can find in our episode show notes, and you can find it off our website, Drabblecast.org. You can also find it by just Googling the two words Drabblecast Reborn on Google, using the hashtag Drabblecast Reborn on social media, whatever. We're halfway there, folks, but only halfway through. We still need your help. Come on in and get involved. Drabblecast Reborn. All right, let's get to our relaunch pre-launch episode this week. Drabblecast presents Fiction Editor's Logger Clutch. What the heck is a logger clutch, you ask? Well, it's a made-up German word I made from the term coffee clutch, which convention goers are quite familiar with. It means coffee and gossip. In German, I guess. Replaced with lager, you get the idea here. It's always fun to get a behind-the-scenes picture of something you love, right? Well, I assume you all love listening right now to weird stories, speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasy, horror, etc. Behind any anthology, website, volume of work, behind all the production and voice actors, distribution, technology, visuals, contracts, layout, a list of things out there that almost never ends, there's a single editor, or a couple. But who knows? There's a person who reads a story and makes a call that starts it all. And it's not that easy. God, I wish it was as easy as just reading a story and making a call. But that's just step one. Today, folks, you get that behind-the-scenes inside scoop from the perspectives of those people, the people who tip the very first domino and hope that all the other ones he or she has set up fall perfectly into place, all the way to your ears. This logger clutch is a casual conversation-slash-interview that I recorded over beers with myself, Neil Clark, the editor of Clark's World, Scott Anderson, the editor of Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and John Joseph Adams, the editor of Lightspeed Magazine. You'll find a link to all of them and their shows in our show notes. They're all great guys. They run some of the top anthologies in our industry. You probably know them already. I think you'll have a good time being a fly on this wall, folks. So, without further ado, Drabblecast Relaunch Prelaunch brings you Drabblecast Presents Fiction Editor Logger Clutch. All right, let's get going here. Uh, I should actually introduce two first here. We've got John Joseph Adams from uh, Lightspeed, amongst many other things, and uh, Neil Clark from Clark's World, and we've got Scott Andrews here from Beneath Seats the Skies, and I'm uh, Norm Sherman here from Escape Pod and Drabblecast. And uh, thanks a lot, guys, for being here today. Sure. Yeah, thanks well, for having us. The other day I was in uh, browsing through a used bookstore and uh, here in, in Maryland, one of those old kind of 
crusty ones that you can usually find some good vintage paperbacks and stuff in the back. And I just, they had this treasure trove of old Asimovs and analogs and galaxies. And, you know, you could go through there and see all these names of people that your average listener today uh, might not be familiar with, like Poole Anderson and, and Sheckley and these these greats who you're at, you're younger people don't know so much because they've kind of died with these vintage paperbacks and these things. And I was thinking, you know, today, um, We've got we've got our Neil Clarks, we've got our John Joseph Adams, we've got these these people that are kind of still doing that in this brand new medium. And I thought that it uh, it'd be neat to kind of have an informal, what I was thinking of calling a a logger clutch to kind of you know have a couple drinks and talk about talk shop for a while here with you guys and see what's up with the field and what's going on with your magazines and uh, you know horror stories and moments of glory that will inspire future people to go into the field. I, I thought it'd be cool to start things off uh, just to kind of get I, I don't know personally, um, when your moments were for, uh, the, when that light kind of clicked and you knew you kind of wanted to take this more seriously and start doing more, uh, editorial work than whatever else life would call you into doing. Since, uh, since John is left on my screen here, why don't we start with you, John, and, uh, just, you know, kind of how, how your history with this whole field went. Uh, sure. Yeah. You know, so I, in college, I majored in creative writing and I did some workshopping in there and, um, after college, I, I thought I might like to get a job in editing because at the time I was sort of pursuing writing and I thought being an editor would be a cool day job to have because I one thing I learned in college was that, you know, oh, you're not going to be able to just write. You're going to have to get a day job. So um, I moved back to New Jersey. You know, I'm from New Jersey. I, I went to school in Florida. And so I moved back to New Jersey and uh, started looking around for a job. And uh, I applied at Asimov's uh, FNSF and Analog. And um yeah, so it was just it was just like a happy accident that uh, I happened to query Gordon Van Gelder at FNSF right at the right time. You know his, um, uh, you know, well it wasn't quite the right time. He didn't have any openings right when I emailed him, but then um, he told me to check back later in the year, and then like a couple months later, his assistant gave notice, and I I followed up with him, and and uh, and he's like, hey, come up to Hoboken for an interview. So. Um, yeah, so once I did that um, and I got the job, uh, it it took me all of like you know a day to figure out that I wanted to do this uh, as a career. So uh, yeah, so that's how that's how it worked for me. How old were you at that interview? Uh, let's see, I was probably twenty three. Something like that. Uh, no, I, you're yeah. a young pup. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, a lot of people, um, you know, go to college right out of uh, right out, right after high school. Uh, I didn't. Um, I actually dropped out of college when I was 16, and then um, I later went to community college, and then so you know, so I actually graduated college a little older than most people, but um, but yeah, but I was about 23 or so. Huh. Cool. What about you, Neil? Um. Well, this isn't the first career path for me. Uh, I, I came into editing around age 40 um, and sort of stumbled into it, too. I, I never had any plans or, or uh, uh, goals to get into it, and it found me, and I've decided that I want to leave my 20-something year career in technology and education and move over to editing. And I think the the moment that sort of iced that for me was a heart attack two years ago, um, realizing that um, I really needed to focus on on what I enjoyed in life, and, and this is the direction I'm heading now. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a wake-up call, huh? Oh, yeah. Neil is part bionic man. <laughs> it's amazing. So and uh, so how long have you been doing this? I guess now total how many years? Uh, eight years. Clark's World is is turning eight next month. Okay, great. Yeah, Scott, I see. I can see you there on video. You seem to be drinking something out of a jar. <laughs> uh, th this is a British pub mug. Did you see these in Ireland, Neil? Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's full of water. I'm having a water clutch. 
Okay. Well, that works, so for, can, works for me. Yeah. Clear. Yeah. You've got kind of a different approach to Beneath Seas of Skies. You've got a, a nonprofit model over there. How'd you come to be uh, involved in that? That's uh, the, um, it's, it's, that's sort of the, uh, the, 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 the coda to it all. Uh, uh, I came up uh, in high school as a young man uh, writing, and I think the high school lit mag advisor people would, would tap the writers to be on the, the lit mag staff. Uh, so I got roped into that. So then I get to college and, and I enjoyed doing it in high school. Uh, and my college actually had two lit mags. They had one that had done a lot of student stuff, but it started doing literary stuff from the uh, literary community. Uh, and then another one had picked up the psych of the students. So I went ahead and applied and auditioned uh, uh, and they picked me. Uh, and so I was on a fiction staff with a bunch of upperclassmen that was actually really, really cool. Uh, fun fact, one of whom was Patton Oswalt, the comedian, mm. huh. who's, who's brilliant, really sharp guy. Uh, and then at the end of that year, they spoke to me and there was another freshman. Uh, and they said to the two of us, uh, would you all like to be co-fiction editors next year? So I ended up editing, being co-fiction editor of a, a small college literary journal for two years in, in college which was the coolest thing I did there uh, out of everything. And I really, really enjoyed that, uh, uh, the four years of reading and the two years of editing. So then I spent six years writing in grad school and a postdoc. And when I finally got back to, to trying my own writing, uh, or maybe five, six years of that, I was very interested in fantasy and other worlds, but with realistic people, character-driven, with uh, the human heart in conflict with itself, uh, like, like Faulkner said. Uh, but there weren't many places publishing that. There'd be a few stories occasionally in FNSF. Uh, John probably remembers the Chris Woolrich Gaunt and Bone stories. I absolutely loved those, and there might be a few in, in realms of fantasy, but not very many. Uh, so after a few years of that, I said, you know what? Uh, uh, I was an editor of some type before. I don't think I knew what I was doing at all uh, back then, uh, but with that sort of experience, and I was interested in this kind of fiction, uh, and I knew from seeing people like Neil uh, start these things up themselves uh, that it was possible. Um, so then at that point, uh, looking at the models, the nonprofit model was, was absolutely the right thing for me because I'm, I'm, I'm just a, a, a nerd with a compulsion about an idea. I'm not a, a businessman, uh, a pioneer like Neil. Um, and I'm uh, uh, not a uh, visionary with the material like John. I'm just a guy. I know what I like, and, I, and I'd like to put that out for people and see what they think of it. So, so that's why I went toward that. That's cool. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I guess John, you got kind of a uh, approach to it where you, you were in traditional like print publishing for a lot before you kind of made that jump into starting Lightspeed and uh, you know all the different zines online. Um, Kind of what made you do do that? When did Lightspeed start, by the way? That was about four years ago or five? Uh, well, it started in 2010, in June 2010. Okay. Um, and uh, so, you know, I mean, I was working at FNSF since uh, 2001, and uh, just the opportunity came up to, to do Lightspeed. Uh, basically, in 2008, I published my first anthology, which was Wastelands, and that was really successful. And that sort of opened up the door for me to be able to do other things. And so, you know... Um, uh, Prime Books approached me to do Seeds of Change, which was like a, a little original anthology that I did. Um, and I say little, I mean like it's only it was only like forty thousand words, so it was very short. Um, and uh, they were very pleased with how that turned out, and and you know it sold pretty well for you know the little tiny book that it was. Um, and then uh, I did The Living Dead, um, and that also did really well. That even better than Wasteland. So that just opened up all kinds of doors for me. And um, in the wake of that success, um, Prime Books, uh, you know, they came to me 
again, and they said, hey, um, you know, what do you think about uh, launching a magazine? Um, and, you know, Lightspeed launched as a science fiction-only magazine. Um, later, we ended up incorporating fantasy into it, but... Um, yeah, I mean, it was just, uh, it was just all, it all came about because of that. It was all because the opportunity arose. Um, you know, it was, it was kind of a big deal for me when I, when I made that jump because, um, you know, FNSF was paying me more than I was going to make, um, you know, as, as, even as the editor of Lightspeed, just because it was a, a small startup thing and, and Prime Books is a small press itself, so they didn't have like a, a big salary that they could afford to pay me and everything. So, um, so it was kind of, uh, it was kind of tenuous uh, financially, but it seemed like a good gamble because, you know, my anthologies were doing well at the time. I was also working as a publicist at that, by that, by then for Nightshade Books. So, um, you know, I, so I had multiple streams of income. I was also doing some freelance writing, you know, doing reviews and interviews and that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I hated to leave FNSF because I still love it. Um, actually, if you guys can see, I have on my bookshelves over here, um, I still have every single issue of FNSF right here in my office. Wow. Um, That's yeah. impressive. Uh, yeah, I actually, I lucked into that because um, when I was working there, somebody uh, somebody wanted to sell his collection, and he had, like, issue one through um, whatever, like, through 2002 or something like that. Um, and so uh, I had been trying to sort of half-assedly uh, collect them on my own on eBay and stuff, but it's really really hard to, to fill in any kind of complete collection that way um, and so I, I just lucked out the guy he was like selling it for 300 bucks and it's like 300 bucks was a lot of money to me at the time but um, but I mean that was like less than it was like less than 50 cents an issue or something or about 50 yeah. cents an issue so um, seemed like a pretty good deal and and the guy actually lived in Brooklyn so I could just drive over there and pick him up um, yeah so that yeah, a lot of those nice. were going for a lot of those were going for like five or six bucks at this vintage bookstore I was you know at now so yeah. you got investment there yeah actually when you were talking about that bookstore i was like hmm i think all of those magazines would have come home with me yeah um, <laughs> i would have had the cash to drop on it yeah there was yeah. a lot yeah i mean if they were five bucks each i don't know if i would have bought them all but um yeah I, I compulsively hoard uh short fiction at this point like i when i moved i moved from new jersey to california when i'm after i met my wife uh you know who became the, the woman who became my wife anyway right. um and uh I had like 50 boxes of novels and stuff and, and I ended up just leaving them all there because I don't, I don't really have time to read novels anymore. It's all short fiction, but I did have to move all my short fiction and which was another 50 something boxes or more. Um, and so now that's everything that I have in the house is just all anthologies, collections, you know, magazines, anything that, you know, any, any sort of form of short fiction. That's cool. Yeah. When you went, when Prime kind of like gave you the green light to start Lightspeed and everything, did they give you enough money for a staff and kind of operational costs too, or oh. did you kind of build that up from the ground up? No, 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 <laughs> no. I mean, it's all, it's all really tiny and it's still tiny. Um, right. Yeah. You know, um, it's like Lightspeed is, is making money, you know, enough to sustain itself. So I'm not, I'm not like bleeding money running it, but it's, I mean, basically I'm putting everything back into the magazine at this point, which includes paying some staff now that, now that we're actually making some money, I can pay some staff, but you know, nobody's making a living on this. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I mean, and, but, but when prime first started it, no, I mean, I was making a very small salary and our nonfiction editor was making a small salary. Um, and otherwise basically all the money was going to paying contributors, you know, paying the authors, paying the artists, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So, uh, yeah, no, 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 uh, no big salaries were involved ever. Well, I've, I've heard Neil say before that he, uh, one of his goals, maybe he's attained at this point is to kind of do this full time. And are you there yet, Neil, or? Oh no. <laughs> no, it's it's going to be a few years uh, at, at this rate. I mean, we we managed to get ourselves uh disqualified from semi-prosing by making too much, but the threshold for that's still pretty low. Um the hope is to go part-time uh in, within the next year or two. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's. Uh, I know you've got some strong thoughts on the on the, the prosine stuff. You guys have done a lot of outreach for that category, and isn't that changed now though? As far as the the um, the money the money that your zine can make that will make you semi pro or pro, or is that still the same as it was it was before? Oh no, the the new rules went into effect uh, a while ago, and uh, that's why we're no longer eligible. I got you. We uh, we earned too much last year or the year before. So they look at your tax returns and they determine. <laughs> no, no, you have to be honest when they when they say you're a nominee, are you eligible? You say no, and we were we actually didn't want anyone voting for us and and shifting stuff away from somebody who should be on the ballot. So we told everyone in advance, don't vote for us. We're no longer eligible. Mm. Yeah. Well, John did pretty well this year. So uh, congrats there, I Thank must you. say. Yeah, Cheers. Well, uh, yeah, thanks, thanks, Neil, for, uh, for, for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect segue. Yeah. That's neat. What was that like, John? Oh, it was awesome. I mean, um, you know, I, I wish I could have been there in London to pick it up myself. And so I still haven't seen it. I haven't held it. I haven't, uh, I haven't gotten to caress my Hugo yet. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it was pretty great. Uh, actually, uh, we're kind of uh, frenemies with uh, the with Thomases, uh, you know, who used to run Apex and now run Uncanny. I, I, I say frenemies jokingly. I mean, we, we sort of jokingly call them our nemeses, but really, you know, we're friends. And so right. um, since they were up for a couple of Hugos as well, we, we did like a Google Hangout and we and we were watching the Hugos together. Um, and uh, so so that was kind of cool. Um, and uh, Stefan Rudnicki, who does the podcast for Lightspeed um, and who is a you know like a legendary audiobook uh, narrator and producer? Um, he was actually in London and he got to accept for us and he got a Hugo for himself, so that was nice. But um, it, it was cool that we had somebody at least from the magazine actually there to pick it up. Um, but uh, yeah, it was just really cool regardless. I mean, even if I couldn't be there, um, you know, uh, it's 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 hard. Uh, I won't I won't lie. It's like kind of hard to get nominated like for you know a series of years and then to not win because you're like oh man I just want to get that one and then I won't care yeah. you know because then <laughs> then I can say I got my Hugo I don't care but you know it's like you just gotta get that one. Um, yeah. And uh, so they I, hook you though. You're yeah. gonna be you're gonna be fiending for more yeah, Hugo junkie, next year. Yeah. 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 Well, totally. <laughs> That's neat. Yeah. Well, Neil, you um, what was it like making that jump from one career to another? Like, what was it? Was it? Did you feel the field was lucrative, or did you really have a passion for sci-fi? <laughs> <laughs> Is this a stand-up routine? Oh, fine. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Well, I ha- I'm still I still have a day job, so I haven't made the jump yet. Oh, okay. Um, but I I did um, switch to a a lower level position, so I wouldn't have to deal. I used to. Um, run all the technology for for schools and universities and um now i'm much lower position where i don't have to supervise anyone and come home at five o'clock and the rest of the time is mine so that was sort of the the first stage was backing away from all of those uh um, well, I, at one point I was working 70 hours a week on that job. Mm. So, and, and now I'm probably spending that on the magazine. So, yeah. but, uh, it's, uh, uh, a lot of, uh, um, a lot of time, uh, going into it. It's, but I enjoy it. Um, it's something that is never the same every day. You know, yes, there's slush, but every story is different and, you know, every issue is a new challenge. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, we're also involved in this in a very interesting time. Yeah. I mean, Clark's World's been around for eight years, and in that eight years, there's been so much change in the field. Um, you know, there weren't ebooks, that, at least not in the, the mainstream sense, uh, when we launched in, in uh, 2006. So um, it's been a very 
uh, wild ride. It's sort of a wild west sort of mm-hmm. field. At the, even now, um, as people are still trying to figure out how to make a living doing this. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're hoping to be the first one to cross from fully online to, to uh, um, full-time job, but it's going to be a, a road, but I, I'm at least optimistic about it. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, even though we're all kind of nemeses and also friends at the same point, any any one market that would bring, that would go into that realm there would really bring the whole fan base up extraordinarily, which is, you know, a huge thing is just outreach about this whole pod, what is podcasting, what is short fiction, who's reading that anymore, speculative fiction, that kind of thing online. You know, it's it's great. That reminded me of what you were talking about, Neil, you coming home at five and being like, then I've got this time for me finally. And what you really meant was like this slush time. <laughs> I wanted to, to kind of get your guys' take on, uh, you know, man to man, what you, what you, how your personal lives sometimes are affected by that kind of, you know, you get the day job, you come home, you normally would spend it with your girlfriend, with your kids or whatever, and there's a certain amount of extra work you have to do along with the zine. How, how do you manage that or what are some of the quirks with that? Scott, I guess we haven't heard from you, Zach. What, what do you have? Yeah, the time management, uh, I, I'm teaching part-time. Uh, I'm married well, so that's uh, that's a big part of my situation. But for me, a big casualty has been my own writing, um, the 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 time required. And for me, the magazine is a different sort of thing. You know, my own writing, my own creating is sort of a time nebulous thing. You know, how much, however much time it takes. But the magazine, my inbox is full of stories that people sent me, and they're expecting a response. Right. Uh, and you know, there's a date on it. There's a ticking clock. Uh, and and when that clock starts to get up to you know four weeks or so, then I start to feel uh, uh, that I'm letting them down. Mm. So the, and and then you know also the production schedule. You know, an issue has to come out every fortnight. A podcast, I have to edit the audio, etc. So to me, I think it's part of the 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 sort of the deadline based. Uh, aspect of it and the commitment-based aspect of it. I mean, my, my name is on the front, as are all of us. Our names are up on the masthead there. We are synonymous with these uh, with these magazines. So if something slips or something, then, then it, then it com- completely comes back on me. So th- that is a, a, a pressure uh, and, a, and a time commitment. Um, and I, I think I've been able to handle it pretty well. Uh, but my own writing has has gotten a lot less time uh, as a result. So, so if we were to ask your wife, you know, uh, what is it like to come up to in, upstairs and see Scott with his headphones and a glass of bourbon at one o'clock in the morning? You know, editing audio is this affecting your marriage at all? You should be like, oh no, no, it's, it's fine. It really, his, his own writing is what's suffering. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like she she actually really enjoys reading the stuff, and she gets to read a lot of it early uh, before the eBooks are out. She actually proofs the podcast for me. Uh, to make sure I haven't accidentally left any little repeats or any glitches in the editing. So she gets to hear every single BCS podcast two days before the rest of the world. Uh, So she's actually very helpful in that regard. Um, I talk to her about uh, fiction and, uh, you know, fiction structure, craft kind of things, uh, which we used to do back when I was writing because she would read my drafts. Um, but she's very much uh, the, the the wise reader sort of view on it, as I think uh, Orson Scott Card calls it in one of his writing books, um, uh, which also means, as he mentions in the writing book, that I've kind of spoiled her enjoyment of things like movies because <laughs> she can feel, you know, the three-act structure isn't working here, whereas uh, before <laughs> she was just a happy viewer not knowing anything about three-act structure, et cetera. You ruined um, all entertainment for her forever. Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> um, but no, it, absolutely priceless fact. 
valuable uh, uh, help in that. And John, you must have a similar relationship with uh, with Christine too, as far as editing and things like that. It must be kind of fun. Uh, yeah, you know, my wife is Christy Ant, who's a writer and uh, also an editor now. She edited uh, our Women Destroy Science Fiction special issue. Yeah, which was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean. Um, I'm, I'm kind of lucky in that, uh, although Lightspeed isn't my day job, my day job is editing and publishing. You know, I, I, I make my living off of um, publishing anthologies and, you know, publishing and editing anthologies. You know, um, I don't publish all of the ones I do, but I do. I have been publishing some of them now. And, of course, um, uh, you know, I publish the magazines, although publishing the magazines and editing the magazines, that's more like my hobby that I spend way too mm-hmm. much time on, you know. Um, and, uh, so, so, you know, it doesn't eat into my, um, it doesn't eat into my sort of family time really, because I just work a regular, I work a regular work day more or less. And then, you know, at the end of the day, I, you know, go hang out with my family or whatever. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, obviously, uh, all of us, uh, sort of editorial or writer types, like, you know, we're not going to just stop at the, at the regular work day. We're going to, we're going to be thinking yeah. about it and obsessing about it all the time. Um, but it actually works out since, as you know, as mentioning, my wife's also a writer, so she, you know, um, so you know, she needs that time as well. Like you know, so uh, we we sort of try to try to get ourselves into a schedule where you know we'll go, um, you know, we'll eat dinner, we'll watch some TV, you know, and, and you know, hang out with the family and everything, and um, and then we sort of go to bed early. But then you know, uh, instead of going to bed, we sort of work while we're in bed, and you know, so she'll be writing, I'll be reading, you know, that mm. kind of stuff. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just t- it tends to work out, um, you know, and it's like uh, she, she, she gets on my case sometimes for not for, for not taking any time off to do stuff like, you know, because because like every everything that I'm doing, even if it's not like strictly work related, it's work related <laughs> somehow. Yeah, right. You know, so um, but, you know, g- given that I just start uh, I just uh, this year took on the role of I'm, I'm going to be the series editor of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy for Houghton Mifflin. It's like. Now I'm even busier than ever. I have to read mm-hmm. every damn thing that's published in the genre and hunt around through mainstream journals to find out any of the science fiction that ends up in there. So, um, you know, so it's so it's like a lot, you know. And yes, so I, that's got, a lot. Yeah, I've got even less less excuse to ever slack off on anything. It's daunting, and you got all this end is nice stuff, which I'm working with you on as far as the audio. You yeah, know, which yeah. Is, which is neat, but that's a lot. I can't believe you're doing, you're taking on the audio for all those stories. Uh, I was like, is this guy crazy? <laughs> I am crazy. I shouldn't have done that. We should have. We should have definitely outsourced um, the audio parts. Uh, um, you know, the the thing that Norm's mentioning, uh, the the end is nigh. It's 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 a it's the first book in a in a series of anthologies. I'm calling the Apocalypse Triptych, which I'm co-editing and co-publishing with Hugh Howey. Um, and the second book just came out called The End Is Now, and the, and the audiobook's coming out on the around the fifteenth or so, hopefully. Um, but uh, you know, because it's still in progress. But um, you know, well, I have a producer that I'm working with, Jack Kincaid, and he's so he's doing you know most of the nitty gritty on the producing. But I was lining up the the narrators and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I mean, I, I have been very involved, and it's been much more work than I was initially anticipating. But um, yeah, yeah, we probably should have outsourced that. But we were trying to do everything DIY. We were like, we're going to do it all ourselves, and well, why not do the audiobook ourselves too? You know, so. Um, yeah, because we did every every other part of it. You know, Hugh laid out the print edition. I laid out the ebook. So it was like, you know, it was like we literally just did it all ourselves. Um, well, we didn't design the cover. We did hire out for that. But right. um, you know, we we were trying to do it all DIY. And did, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have done that for the for the audiobook. But 
It turned yeah. out it turned out well, pretty well though, I think. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm hearing good things, and you know, you got awesome people like me helping you out there. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, no, so that's it, fine. And, and I just I love I love your narration, so it was really cool to get um, to get you to be able to do this, and, and like you're just a perfect fit for some of the things that we got you narrating here, like that like the Will McIntosh stuff. It's just like your intensity really works for that. Uh, that story is so sad. Yeah. It's like a, t- a tearjerker, big time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but that, that was, you know, that's it's really ambitious. And, and Neil, you guys just started doing. Is it every story or every a weekly thing with the podcast? Whereas before, you kind of had a different schedule with the, what you're releasing your audio as. Oh no, we've been releasing the audio, uh, all the stories regularly for for some time now. Um, when we first started, we we were doing just one a one a month, but now we're, we've been doing all of them. And as we increase the volume of stories we do, we we. Uh, Add it to the podcast, and um, uh, I, th- I think it's a, a, a test of how much Kate can take. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, and, and you know, if things go well, we'll be adding another one on top of that. Uh, you know, starting in in January. Um, we got our, a new team. No, no, no. Um, we, we're um, right now. We're running a, a Kickstarter campaign to fund a uh, Chinese translation project. Oh, right. Okay, I saw that on Twitter. Um, so that'll be an additional story onto the pile uh, each month, um, and probably with words that'll require some <laughs> thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Now, do you do an audio version and a print version of every story, just because there's an audience kind of for each? Some people like to read, some people like to listen, or what's your kind of reasoning behind that? Yeah, actually, when we first started the magazine, we, we sort of figured, well, we'll go wherever the readers are. And, uh, you know, when we found out there was an audience for audio, we, we started doing podcasts. We didn't, did print because there's some people who only read print. And the uh, uh, digital editions, just whatever format we needed to. I've been somewhat reluctant to do a PDF version. I refuse to consider a PDF an ebook. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Oh, why is but, that? Because uh, it's a headache, or because PDF? Okay, I'm coming from technology. Yeah, PDF right. was meant to print documents. It's portable document format. You, you, they were. It was designed so that you could email something, print it out, and read it. It's really not designed for screen reading. Mm. It's designed for paper reading. Um, so I think it's kind of uh, counterintuitive to call it an ebook. It's really a distribution format. Gotcha. Um, but I'm picky that way, and I know a number of people disagree with me, particularly in the academic side of, of textbooks and all of that, Right. Um, where you need fixed layout formats. What formats but, do you feel uh, are most downloaded or accessed by like the consumers? Well, the web version is definitely <laughs> accessed more than any of the others. Really, um, more than and, and audio behind that, and then I would say... Uh, because uh, they're free. Every, Right. Yes, because they're free. But uh, of the copies that sell, it's it's uh, Amazon uh, has the lead by far. Um, EPUB's a distant second, uh, and then we have some. We have a, a, a Google app and or Android app and a um, an, uh, uh, an Apple app uh, for the magazine as well, and they, they come in after that so hmm. um, but you know we, we keep doing whatever formats uh, help uh, reach more readers and um, some of them bring in money and that's good too yeah are the uh, the anthologies you do that you sell are those uh, is the goal to kind of reach out to new listeners who I mean maybe some of the pe- your listeners have already heard the stories or read the stories already and it's anthologized kind of what you're thinking behind that 
Um, whoever wants it. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it, we knew that initially there were people that weren't, like like I said, we, things have changed a lot in the last eight years. And when we first started, there were people telling us, I will never, ever read your magazine <laughs> because it's online. And we don't have that problem as much as we did back then. But we also have people who like to have something on their bookshelf, and I'm one of them. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's for those people. Um, and it's nice to have something physical to, to be able to to uh, to give to the authors, sell at conventions, um, uh, at readings, and other places like that. Uh, plus, you know, we, we get some amazing art, and it's it feels wrong not to have it in print somewhere. Right. Huh. Yeah, because I'm just asking because we've been thinking about doing kind of like a, an e-zine um, and, you know, weighing a lot of these options. And I kind of wanted to see how, how lucrative or how much work. So we don't do something like, you know, what John just kind of self-confessed about how outsourcing audio would have been a good thing. You know, kind of some mistakes to avoid if somebody's starting a zine, what formats to use. Is it really, does it break even or is the goal to kind of take a little bit of a loss but to reach out to more audience, that kind of thing? Like, I guess, what, what are your Play- thoughts on that? The place to make money is subscriptions, digital subscriptions. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you're going to start anywhere, start with that, and I would head over to, uh, to start talking with waitlist books because they're probably your best bet at this point in time. Hmm. Um, Amazon's been uh, – um, well, they shut the door on the program that, that John and I and, and I think Apex and, and maybe one or two others got in. Um, and we can't even if, – if any of us had anything else we wanted to do, we couldn't get them to sell it. Mm. Um, so it's it it's unfortunate. It's our it's one of our major rev- um, and that's sort of cut off for a lot of people. Um, but uh, waitlist is a great alternative. Uh, a lot of people uh, reading or getting small press magazine subscriptions through there, um, and they're they're great people to work with. Um, yeah, that's and interesting about Amazon. Why do you think they cut that? I don't know. It was an, it, you know, it doesn't seem like it would be any work for them to just leave it going because it's it runs off a feed. It was more of a nuisance for me to make the feed right. um, than it would was for them to build the thing. Everything's automated on their side. It was a money machine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, basically it was Amazon's ATM for magazines. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know why they closed. It was always listed as a beta product, and it never launched into. Uh, it, it was a beta for years, mm-hmm. um, and it just never opened up past that. Yeah, has this affected you, Scott? Your online sales? Like yeah, well, uh, I cannot get sales uh, through Amazon subscriptions. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I mean it's it's disappointing that that's not an avenue at all. Um, the BCS started while they were open. Uh, and while, while you and John were talking about DIY for audio, I was nodding my head. I'm, I'm one of these uh, poor folks who can't delegate. So I do everything, almost everything myself. I have a, a first reader, um, and that's it. Um, so it takes me some time to get around to things. And by the time I finally got around to, to digging into the Amazon subscriptions, sure enough, the bastards had closed. Mm. Um, so it's, it, it really is too bad that, that that option is not available. But, you know, what can you do? Um, Waitlist came along, uh, uh, and so it's been great to work with them. Um, I'm also sort of in a bit of a gray area. I, as, as part of the nonprofit mission, I want the fiction to be available as cheaply or as free as possible. Um, because, you know, as a nonprofit, you have to justify your purpose. 
uh, why, why is the world a better place for you existing? Why, and the IRS is the ones who's asking these questions, mm-hmm. why, why do you deserve to be tax-free? Um, so I am selling eBooks, and I'm also giving away the eBook files on the website. Uh, so there's a bit of a catch-22 there. You know, how, how can you get people to pay for something they can get for free? Uh, and we've been able to, to work around that a little bit by putting eBooks out early, a couple weeks before the issue goes live on the website, and charging the absolute lowest we possibly can. So single issues of BCS in Kindle Store are 99 cents because that's pretty much as low as we can go. Uh, and when we when we sell ebooks, when we have an ebook sale, um, I do often mention in there. You know, uh, we just had our best of BCS Year Five anthology come out, which is 17 stories for four bucks as an ebook. And yes, you could go cool. find all those stories for free on the website and save all of their individual files and you know compile them into a big file of your own. But when when we're selling these in these posts, I always say you know yes, you can get these in a convenient package and you can help support us. Mm. So I'm trying to leverage that support factor as well and let people know that if they will cough up a little bit for the ebook that that money is all going to go straight back into the magazine to to pay contributors Uh, and i'm hoping that it's a bit of the itunes model uh you remember back in the mp3.com etc you know napster days people would snag music for free itunes comes along and part of it's their cool device but part of it is also setting the price point low enough that people are like and what the hell it's easier just to pay them the dollar and get the MP3 than to go BitTorrent or whatever. So I'm also trying to play on that to, to try and hit that low sweet spot where people will cough up just a bit of money uh, uh, and knowing that it'll support and come back into the magazine. Hmm. And John, do you you use more uh, premium content kind of models, right? Like you have some that's for free and then some that you kind of hold back for certain zines? Uh, not too much, actually. I mean, we do have a huh. little bit of that. Um, Lightspeed, we include a, a novella reprint in every issue of, of the ebook that isn't available on the website. But that's really it um, on a regular uh, a regular month. Um, our Women Destroy Science Fiction issue actually has a bunch of uh, exclusive content that's only in the print or, or ebook edition and of course it's it's available actually in print which most of our issues are not um, because you but but you know that's because we we crowdfunded it and we mega funded what we were asking for and everything and so um, that made the issue into such a huge behemoth that we actually couldn't put it all on the website without restructuring how the website is actually designed to display content and so yeah. we're like okay well you know we can still give everybody the same amount of content they're used to getting in lightspeed and then we'll just since this is a special issue we'll have that other specials that other stuff uh, reserved for uh for people who want to actually buy the buy the ebook and support the magazine that way so um yeah so that one actually has uh, about twice as much content as a regular issue and so you know if you buy the, the regular issue which actually costs the same as a regular issue uh mm-hmm. you get all that additional content um but regular issues are always online too for free yeah 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 so Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's basically like the same thing what scott was saying is that you know you try to convince people that hey this is a convenient way to get it um it'll get delivered to your device every month you don't have to worry about it you don't have to think about it um and i mean i think it's really easy once you convince people to try that it's really easy to convince them how uh, how much value there actually is in that. Like, I mean, me personally, like, I don't want to read, I don't want to read something on my phone or on my Kindle or whatever that I just right. download off the website. I'd much rather just have it delivered in a, in a convenient package. Um, hmm. You know, that, you know, cause it's going to be formatted nicely. I don't have to worry about like some tool that I send it to my, to my device with that it like mangles the formatting or something. Or, you know, if you, if you send, um, you, you know, you send word docs to, to your, to yourself uh, on your Kindle or whatever. And it's like, it's just, it's, just so much more of a hassle than um, just, you know, getting something that you can subscribe to and it just shows up every month. 
Huh, yeah. It's just funny, like, thinking about what the uh, the editors of Yesteryear, what they must have been talking about if they had some similar meetings, you know, not, not the same conversations at all, you know, yeah. about how to, how to monetize the, the John W. Campbells, but their conversations would have been more like... It would have been a lot more racist. Yeah. How can we get more powerful white men teaching lessons to different races and women? And Neil, I was wondering, uh, you've been doing this for eight years now, and John, I guess all of us have been doing this for at least seven or eight years, uh, kind of... Uh, those gleaming moments among the slush when you're kind of, you know, reading and you're bummed out a little bit and you'd rather be doing anything other than reading a <laughs> shitty story that's in front of you or, you know, the mountain of, of work just keeps piling up in front of you. And then you come across an awesome story by an, an awesome author that you maybe never heard of before. Or I know like winning a Hugo, both, uh, both you guys uh, have, have you won, have you won your Hugo yet there, Scott? Is it, is it still in the future? No, no. Okay. Hopefully in the future up for the world fantasy award in a couple months. Okay. Well, I got my fingers crossed. Thank you. That's got to be a career highlight. But, like, what's some of those those important moments where that made it all worthwhile? Um, let's see. The the last Hugo Award we won was was really personal for me because it was from the year where, where I had the heart attack and, right. and all these other things going wrong in my life. And here the magazine just did good. You know, it, 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 uh, um, we had a great year and, and people responded to it. So being able to, I don't remember receiving the award. I remember getting up to the stage, blacking out basically, and being backstage afterwards. Um, so I only found out what I said by watching the videotape. Mm. Um, and I went off my original script. Um, so it, it was definitely one of, one of the better moments. And unfortunately I, I only have video to remember it by. Um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, uh, go and even though, um, you know, going this year to the award ceremony uh, up for, um, editor short form like John. Um, but my dad came with me. So having my dad there in the audience and we were in the front row, um, uh, watching all of this and, and, you know, it was great to, to show him that, world because he's totally disconnected from it um, and had no idea um, what my life in that world was like. Um, And now he understands it. So it was a a very nice personal moment. And I think those are the things that tend to stick with me the most is, is are the, are those, those personal moments where, where something just clicks and, and feels right. And it's why I'm doing this um, because I'm finding so much of that uh, in, in, in this job. Yeah, you know what's actually touching about that for me, Scott. Do you remember when we were at um, was it Capclave last year? We were listening to right. Gardner go on with with uh, who all was on the panel up there, and I remember Neil and his kid were there, his son, and that's that's kind of a neat generational. I don't think your that disconnect is going to be there with you and your son because your son's a future science fiction writer, author. You're kind of grooming him. We, we were talking about before, which is which is neat, but uh, that's definitely cool to kind of open up your ad relative who's never kind of. It's really hard to explain what we do sometimes, you know, and so yeah. <laughs> to have them see well, it. it. I, I've done things where, you know, we were on vacation once and it was raining, so we were trapped in the hotel room, and I sat in the bed and the boys plopped down next to me, and, you know, now they're, they're uh, uh, my oldest is, is 14 now, and, and the youngest is 11, um, and this was probably about a year ago. They sat on the bed next to me and said, entertain me, basically. <sighs> so I started reading the slush to them. Oh, God. And they were rolling on the bed laughing. At some of the stuff. See, we couldn't do that at Drabblecast, not with our slush. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Unless you see, the kids are in the unicorn race. I 
there were stories that they skipped, but there's one that they still remember, um, and and they 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 joke about it, and it's inspired both of them now to submit stories to the magazine under pseudonyms. Hmm. Um, neither one of them has been smart enough not to use their own email address, but oh. it's still I still think it's kind of cool that they're writing and and actually sending something out, even though they don't expect it to be published. They 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 get it. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm hoping that that sticks with them. And, you know, I never had that uh, as a kid. You know, I read all of this stuff and, and my dad supported me as a reader, mm-hmm. uh, but I never connected like that. And I think it's kind of neat to, to, you know, maybe maybe one day they'll take over for me. Yeah. John, what's it like telling your relatives at Thanksgiving and stuff like what you do? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it gets a little complicated. Uh, I mean, you know, my, my mother gets it, you know, my sister gets it, you know, um, I now have much extended family on my side, but then, you know, now that I'm married, you know, I, I have my, my, my wife's family, um, and she was adopted. So she, so her birth, her birth family gets it, but then her adoptive family, they don't, they don't really get it. I mean, like some of them like kind of do, but it's just like, um, you know, it's always a little awkward and, and trying to, you know, really explain what it is that I do and, and uh, you know, but uh, I mean, they're, they're pretty understanding. I mean, all things considered, I can't say that I have too many complaints. It's not like, um, like, I mean, I can imagine much worse uh, situations, um, you know, uh, where people just like, they, they think you're a leech on society or something because all you're doing is, uh, is, is creating science fiction or whatever instead of, uh, instead of doing something like, like a real job, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to say like stripping ha! or something like yeah. that, you know, but <laughs> well, that, that's yeah. a, that makes an that's a worst situation. Yeah. 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 You know, gotta have strippers. Yeah. Gotta keep the poles warm. What about you, Scott? Yeah. My dad's a scientist and, and, and my degrees in chemistry. So he and I relate very well in that real world sort of level, but I think he's read like two or three fiction books in his entire life. He hmm. just does not grok the concept of things that aren't real. Uh, my mom was really the one I connected with on that. She was the one who took me to the library when I was a little kid, where they had uh, big wall posters of the Derek K. Sweet Lord of the Rings paperback uh, cover art from late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and she was she had a bunch of old uh, SF from the late 60s, early 70s before I was born. Um, so she was really the one that, that I connected with uh, over that. And she actually passed away a few years before BCS, but I think she really would have liked it. The gadgetry, mm-hmm. definitely, the ebooks and readers, mm-hmm. but the whole idea of, uh, of online fiction uh, and the, you know, the handiness of being able to read this on the treadmill. Mm-hmm. She probably would have loved the podcast, too. Um, so, so definitely, uh, and I was thinking about that while Neil was talking about his cool, uh, uh, father son moment. If I am fortunate enough to give an acceptance speech at some point, then, uh, th- that'll definitely be on my mind, but I have all her old seventies SF and all that stuff. So I'm sort of continuing, uh, uh, the legacy from that very much of being taken to the library as a little kid. So she definitely would have gotten it, and she—I might have roped her into being proofreader or, you know, uh, the magazine accountant or something, um, <laughs> because she she definitely would have enjoyed that. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, actually, you know, speaking of mothers, uh, um, you know, I should probably give my mother a little bit more credit. Um, if, if, if uh oh, that's my cat. Oh, <laughs> I thought it was a goat. 
Um, oh, it did sound like a he's goat. He's as big as a goat. <laughs> um, yeah, if not if not for my mother having uh, having a, a copy of Jurassic Park uh, sitting on on the table uh, when you know when I was like I don't know sixteen or seventeen, like I don't know that I would have ended up here. You know, it's like that's what sort of started my um, pursuit into science fiction and everything. Because it's like after I read that, it's like it blew my mind, and I was like, oh my god, I got to find more stuff like that. And of course, you know, in retrospect, I can see now that like that book and all of Crichton's are sort of like anti science fiction in a way because science fiction is the bad guy in all in, in all of his stories but yeah. uh but it got me started and it, and, and it's like it, it taught me that like hey i can read this stuff that has equations and shit in it you know it's like and it's full of science there's so much science in that book like um i mean probably twice as much as, as most science fiction novels that i actually read so um but yeah that got me started and and so it's all because my mom just had it sitting there i don't even know if she had read it but i mean she did she did have it so yeah, that's funny. It reminds me of, uh, I think I was in fourth grade, and I uh, my mom had a copy, or I don't know if it was my mom or my dad, probably my dad, but it was a copy of Jaws, Peter Benchley's Jaws, sitting around. And I remember, like, just as a young kid, had a big shark on the front, you know, and any kid's going to grab that. And I, like, flipped and didn't see any pictures and started <laughs> reading it. And I remember being blown away, because chapter two, I was like, holy fuck, this is from the shark's perspective? <laughs> like, that was the first time I'd ever encountered that, you know? Then he's just seeing the legs and things, and I didn't know books were written like that, and it really yeah. hooked me into, into all sorts of weird shit from that point on you know when you can when you can write from a shark's perspective of you know you're reaching out to the star it's neat. So, did you have like a book that you kind of remembered as a kid neil oh yeah my my uh my cousin gave me uh three books one year uh and i was around 12 um one was um stranger in a strange land the other was the hobbit and then adventures in space and time mm. which is a massive collection of golden age science fiction uh, I still have it on my shelf, uh, and that's sort of what got me hooked in the short fiction. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know what he was thinking giving a 12-year-old Stranger <laughs> in a Strange Land. I know, but, I was going to say. But, you know, it, it, might, it does explain some of my tastes in fiction, probably. But uh, <laughs> Okay, I thought you were going a different direction with that. Like, it does explain certain behaviors that, you know, <laughs> be kind of questionable or strange to our culture, but... Yeah, no, that's a that's a pretty heavy book uh, that redefines sex and everything. So yeah, that that would be that would be awesome when you're 12. So <laughs> maybe The Hobbit was standard, more standard fare, I think, for for yeah. us 12 year olds back then. But uh, that's neat. You know, yeah, what it, you, you know, it's funny how uh, it's funny how we can how we how we identify uh, with with literature over the course of our lives because you know it's like. I mentioned Jurassic Park when I was, like, 16 or whatever, but, like, looking back, like, earlier than that, it's like, I mean, basically everything I read as a kid was, was science fiction or fantasy in some form or another. Like, I read um, I read all the Piers Anthony Zanth novels, and, uh, like, I read the Robert Aspirin myth series and all kinds of stuff like that. And, and so it's, like, it's funny just, it's funny that, you know, how I can have read all that stuff and obviously watched tons of media, like, you know, Star Trek and all, all, all kinds of stuff, but not really identify as, as like, oh, I want to, I really want to pursue this like a hundred percent, like until you, re until you get to that one book that sort of like breaks the doors open. Right. Um, and it's funny cause like I didn't even get into short fiction until much later. It wasn't actually until I started writing that, um, even the concept of a short story, uh, really occurred to me cause, um, you know, I would read these writing books and they would talk about them and I was like, oh, huh, where do the, where do short stories appear? You know, right. I mean, I, I mean, I lived in a town that we didn't have any, we didn't, the, the bookstore didn't have any magazine, any fiction magazines. I mean, maybe they had like something that would run one like the New Yorker but not like a fiction magazine like FNSF or something so um, it was quite a revelation to even discover those to me 
You know, that's a really good. I was thinking about that in my used bookstore experience. I was th I was thinking this is so much short fiction that nobody will ever know about. This stuff from the '60s, the '70s, the '80s, and even maybe the '90s that just that isn't going to be on the internet. Nobody's going to pick it up because there's just so many volumes yeah. of it. And a lot of it's really good stuff. It's just you could make three or four new zines just reprinting that stuff yeah. almost. You know, but who has the time to go through and read uh, if you haven't read it already? But yeah. it's an epic thing. Some of those stuff that's going to die. What do you guys think about our new generation? You know, uh, you don't have to talk shit about anybody, but. Like, <laughs> As far as the Hugo's just coming out, like the new, the best novel, some of those, were you generally happy that, you know, some of these certain malevolent characters didn't <laughs> swindle their way in this year or, you know, who won what? Yeah. Well, I was definitely you... happy with the, uh, with the semi-prosing category. I have to really, well, of course, yeah. really be pleased with that. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, very, very, uh, very good year this year. I think like Anne Leckie winning was great. And to see her just sweep all the awards was really great. Um, you know, and, um, yeah, I mean, just generally, I think, uh, a lot of, a lot of the, the winners just seemed like a really like a breath of fresh air, like Cameron Hurley winning and, uh, you know, Aiden Moher winning, um, for fanzine, like all, all, all that kind of stuff. It's like, it's nice to see change, you know, happen. And, uh, yeah, I was pretty pleased with, with the results. Yeah, I think John Chu's story was my favorite of the oh, short yeah. story ones, mm -hmm. too. So I was happy with that. And I hadn't read the best novel yet, so I'm just on my kind of list. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really uh, jealous that you can read novels and things like that in, in your spare time. But oh, you know, oh no, I can't. I can't. Uh, <laughs> I, I, haven't, I haven't read novels in forever. I just I was glad to see her because she's nice, right. and, I, and I like her, and, and, and it seemed like a cool book. And it was like the type of thing that's like, oh, it's nice to see something like that win. You know, I haven't actually read it, but. Yeah. What about you, Neil? Were you more or less happy? Oh, I was very pleased with with the results, and uh, you know, I was talking to to some of the, well, to, to Anne and John and a few other people before um, the award ceremony, and and you know, it's nice to see people who, you know, everyone is 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 hoping for for them to win, and they're convinced they're going to lose, and then to see them win is, yeah. you know, you can see that look of shock on their face. It's it's priceless, um, and and so and and they were so deserving this year. They did such a. Uh, uh, awesome, awesome job. So I had gotten to read Anne's novel, and and uh, um, I don't know how I managed to squeeze it in. I think I only squeezed in a few novels last year. Um, and, and John's story was was one of the best on the list, uh, and, and definitely. Uh, uh, I, I think it, it was a, a good slate overall with. Of course, the notable exceptions of the things that people don't want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I love seeing names move up on these lists that are that are people whose names that that I know from years past. Uh, uh, Anne, I published a story by Anne a year, maybe four years ago. I mean, she'd already sold plenty of short fiction at that point, but hadn't written novels yet. Um, Elliot Day Bedard, I met at a workshop eight years ago, uh, and I published a number of her early things. And of course, she sold a lot to, to Neil uh, and been on Hugo Ballot since then. Uh, Benjamin Street Dwengau, who was up for the Campbell, came through my slush pile three years ago. Uh, you talked about the moments of serendipity a little while ago. That was one. That, that was just an amazing piece. I'd never heard of her. Uh, Seth Dickinson, who was ineligible for the Campbell because of the story of his that came through my slush pile three years ago. You it just bastard. blew me away. <laughs> oh, I, I know. And I it, it, I think the issue it ran in was like December 27th. So oh, if I'd waited one for I know. And I, I apologize to him. Um, I'm sure that made it better. Great. I'm sure he forgives you completely. You know, actually, he's <laughs> that story is the one he's expanded into a trilogy now that he's oh, got okay. to deal with tour. So I, I don't think he minds. Yeah. Uh, and he's he's doing great. I mean, his science fiction stories uh, that Neil has done are amazing. 
uh, Saladin Ahmed last year. I published his first genre sale uh, five, six years ago. That was the origin story of those novel protagonists. Uh, I met him at a workshop, too. He was my roommate. We hang out and drunk together. Uh, so seeing people like that, uh, Yoon Ha Lee, I met her at a workshop 10 years ago. Uh, she'd already sold multiple times to, to, to John and Gordon at FNSF. But seeing people like that uh, who, who, who might have blown me away in the slush pile or whose stuff I, I read years ago in FNSF or, or someplace like that, seeing those people trickle to the top of the major recognition uh, uh, that I think they deserve from, from having read their stuff, that, uh, that sort of reinforces my faith in the, in the overall audience uh, uh, and, and also reinforces perhaps the belief that I'm not crazy by thinking their stuff was so great. You know, you never know. I think this is awesome. Who knows? I'll put it in the magazine and, you know, Lois Tilton will, will scowl at it and, uh, you know, nobody else will like it. But it, it mm-hmm. is, especially being a niche kind of person and a niche magazine, I find it very refreshing when uh, – uh, stuff that I think is cool appeals to other people as well. And seeing some of these names trickle up to the top of the ballots has been very, very cool. Yeah, absolutely. You don't get a whole lot of like, you know, pats on the back and things in this. What about those, uh, the opposite of that spectrum, those, those days where you got like, you just don't want to deal. What are those, those moments that, uh, make you just want to hang it up in your career so far? Not hang it up, but I think when I get the most frustrated, I think part of being a niche fantasy magazine and having the fantasy cover art is that we do get sent a a lot of fantasy short fiction by uh, amateur writers who may be fans of fantasy novels, and but not know much short fiction. So maybe they're more used to the pacing of fantasy novels or the exposition, amount of exposition that's in a fantasy novel. Uh, and maybe also these writers are not really good at, at carrying that off. So we get tons of things in the slush pile. Stories, I think my, my pet peeve is stories that open in a fantasy tavern. Mm. And then the characters get together <laughs> and, you know, form their adventuring party, et cetera. Uh, and I just see so much of that. And, you know, we mentioned it on our guidelines. I mentioned it at panels. Um, you know, please try to find some more interesting and different way uh, to start your story. Um, and, you know, when you get 10 of those after having read Slush for 90 minutes, um, we also do all personalized rejections. So I'm trying to, to find something in this story to compliment. Um, and and that, that can can get to be a bit of a drudgery uh, when those keep coming in. I just want to say that, that that's really impressive that you do all personal rejections. It's not something I could ever take on. In my markets, it's a, it's a big commitment. It's a good thing for you. It's a star on your lapel there, I think. I think so. And that was part of me being a writer and coming through workshops is that that feedback can be really, really valuable. And I remember when my submissions to FNSF to John started getting maybe two lines instead of just one line. I mean, that mm-hmm. was a, that was a, a, a milestone and meaningful content also. So that's the reason I do it. It makes our response times much longer than John's and Neil's. Um, but, but it's important to me. And I have to give a shout out to my first readers. My former first reader, Kate Marshall, mm. is a fellow workshop grad I know. And my current first reader, Nicole Levine, because they, they handle the, the stories that open in fantasy taverns. Most of them, <laughs> I still do some of the slush reading. Um, yeah. So they're a huge, huge help with that. Uh, and then I do the, the pass ups where I often end up writing, you know, three or four lines. Um, excuse me. Some of these people are workshop grads from some of the workshops I went to. So, so I'm, I'm offering what I think, but also trying to frame it uh, in an instructive way. Um, I think my workshop critiquing experience uh, uh, crops up there uh, mm-hmm. some. So it's a labor of love, and I believe it's important, but it, it definitely does add to the, to the time commitment. 
Yeah. Neil, what are some of the headaches you've had so far, some moments that made you scared for your life? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, the the thing is, it, it... Usually, it, it's not a story, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I can stop reading the, the story and move on. I've had some that have disturbed me that I've put in a folder marked crank. Um, <laughs> I have one person who's who's sent me several hundred emails that all ended up in crank um, and harassed my authors and did all sorts of annoying things. Um, and, you know, that still wasn't enough to make me think much more than how do I get rid of this guy? And, mm-hmm. you know, not how do, how do I get out of this? Um, I think the most frustrating times for me were when we were first starting back in, in 2006 and seven, where people were going, you're not going to make it. You're insane. Um, you know, no one reads online fiction, you know, all of that stuff, all the negativity. Um, and, uh, you know, we haven't seen much of that anymore. So, um, yeah, there, there hasn't really been anything that's made me go, Oh, I really, I, I, I need to stop doing this. Um, but, yeah. you know, I guess there's no point. You, you can't tell I told you so to all the people who back, you know, 2007 were saying that. So that must be frustrating. Yeah, well, no, we did, you know what? Our first Hugo, that was the told you so. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> big, big middle finger to the world. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, that was one of those moments where it was like, ha, you know, mm-hmm. see, we can do this. Um, and, and, you know, having stories win awards or make years bests and all of that. And, you know, the reviews don't matter that much to me. But the, the award recognition is sort of a nice little pat on the back and mm. but the the best the best side of it is the the emails that i get from our readers or or uh or some of the the writers even some of the ones we've rejected um uh, and, you know it, it's funny how rejections can actually turn into a conversation at a convention mm. uh in, in uh, london for example i i carry these cards that say rejected by clark's world and there's, <laughs> a, a, good there's idea. a little there's a little guy on it that's in a straight jacket, which is probably would be me if I was doing personalized rejections. Um, <laughs> and um, whenever some, the story behind the card is that people used to come up to me at conventions, point at me and go, you rejected me. Oh God. That was their hello. Mm-hmm. Now, I never knew whether or not that was a sign for me to run or they were just being funny. So I made these cards and now whenever somebody does that to me or, or even mentions that they they've been rejected, I hand them one of these cards and it says rejected by Clark's world on the front. And on the back, it says the bearer of this card was rejected by Clark's world. Please be nice to them. And if they smile when they get that card, I'm safe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, but these cards have now turned, gotten a life of their own. So we end up with conversations that go on about, about submitting stories and working on the magazine and the cards history and all of that. Um, so it, it turned into a nice little thing out of, you know, you know, something that was a little frightening. Yeah, presumably from the the people who have all at this point smiled when they saw it. <laughs> Not the people. Well, nobody nobody has growled or torn it up. Okay. <laughs> so I get emails from writers thanking me. I get a couple of weeks thanking me for the comments and the rejections. Uh, and every couple of months or so, I'll get one that says uh, this story that you rejected and gave me these comments. I tweaked it and sent it off, and it sold to uh, this other place. I think one to FNSF once. Uh, uh, and that is what really makes all that work feel worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Or when I get another story by that person, get their next story, and their next story is much, much better. 
Yeah, that's always better than it being much, much worse. And you right, to, especially if it's worse because of something I suggested they do. That's never happened. Yeah, that's 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 like a theoretical kind of thing you're talking about right there. Yeah. What about you, John? You ever have any thorns in your side doing the work you do? Uh, not too much these days, I don't think. I mean, uh, I like like uh, like these guys. I mean, uh, I I do have some first readers working for me. I I probably have more than anybody, I would guess. I have I have a whole team of of, of people. Um, ideally, I mean, I, I I started doing that because I figured, well, if if no one person has to read more than a few stories, then it's less like they're less likely to get burned out and and to miss uh to miss good stories because they have to plow through 30 or whatever um mm-hmm. and because you know we try to keep a, a two-day turnaround so um you know so so i so i have a i have a team of slush readers to help me and um now also i have a managing editor wendy wagner who um also when stuff gets passed up from the slush it goes to her first and then if she also thinks it's worth me looking at then i look at it uh that's just a way to sort of try to keep me free because now i'm with me publishing the magazine and editing it and editing all this other stuff it's like i gotta manage my time as since like i was saying like lightspeed's basically my uh uh all-consuming hobby um right. not not really a big money maker so um you know i gotta i gotta draw the line somewhere um mm-hmm. and that's and that's a way that i i was able to do that but um but even even so, I do read quite a bit of slush. Like when we're open, we haven't been open for a while because we got so we right. got so overstocked in inventory that we've just been closed for a while. But um, I find that I'm pretty immune to slush at this point. Like I, it can't it can't bug me. It can't annoy me. I you know like like Neil said, I can just stop reading it, and so I do. You know, and I um mm-hmm. I mean I kind of do that with everything in life. Like um you know if I'm watching a TV show and, and I'm not into it, nope. I'm done. I'm not, you know, if it's five minutes, that's enough. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. done. And I, and I cut out. And so I've, I've started watching a lot of movies. I've started watching a lot of TV shows and then, you know, don't finish. Um, and, uh, so, so, you know, I mean, I think I'm, I'm pretty immune to that kind of thing at this point. Um, the thing, the only thing that really sort of bugs me most, most of the time is just like, comments like i don't even know why i ever look at comments i should get that i should get those plugins for the browser that turns all comments into like herp derp or whatever so, so i can't to save me from myself i can't even look at them it's like you know you mean get, on your forums like yeah on, on anything on anywhere yeah. you know it's yeah. just like uh, i mean even if it's stuff that doesn't relate to me i get annoyed by comments but i mean especially when it's our stuff you know so i mean not really not really stuff on our website but like um on io9 we uh, we do a lightspeed presents thing with them where um we post a store one story per month um, on on io9 uh, from the magazine as an, as a way to sort of reach out to io9 readers hopefully to recruit some of them to get them to actually read the magazine regularly um, right. but it's like uh, you know occasionally there's a few nice comments but it's usually just like uh I don't, I don't, it's just making me mad I gotta close this tab and don't even look mm-hmm. at it because um, it's like you know it, it's not like you expect everyone to always love what you what you put out there but it's just like it, it's like the comments are are such that um, like I don't know. It's like it's like they were expecting an apple, but you gave them an orange, and they're still going to review it regardless uh, what they thought it was going to be. Um, yeah. And uh, and I mean the worst is actually not magazine related, but uh, podcast related because you know I also do the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast. I'm, I'm just a oh, producer. Right. I'm a producer at this point, but um, I still am a frequent guest. And so, um, Wired.com. Oh my God, the comments over there. It's like YouTube almost. I mean, there's so mm-hmm. many trolls there. Um, although occasionally it's actually been very uh, entertaining because my co uh, my our, our host and co- my, my co-producer David Bar Kirtley, uh, he, right. occasionally he's actually taken up the fight against them and replied to them and no, actually engaged them. No, that's a cardinal them. rule. Yeah. No, oh I know, God. I know. I thought he was crazy at first, but actually, 
I don't know. He has this ability to just stay completely rational and, and keep all of his emotion out of it. And he just rationally argues with them. And then they go away because they get bored because uh, wow. he's not getting mad. And so um, but it's actually been really entertaining and it's actually generated some real discussions on there. Like, you know, we have some posts that have like 200 comments and, and more. Um, and so is it a good thing? I don't know. I don't, I don't know that it made anybody listen to the podcast, but um, it's been entertaining a couple of times. I, I just tend to avoid them because they just make me mad. Yeah, but there, for me, there's something almost, uh, as much as you hate reading, like, negative commentary about you, there's something also kind of addictive about reading it. Like, I almost want to see it more than positive things, because, you know, people will say positive things about your market and stuff, but I've done Google searches. I remember one time I did a Google search for, you know, like, Drabblecast sucks, or Skatepod, <laughs> it's like, Edgar's not, you know, because you want, I, something about me wants to read that asshole out there who's saying the, his worst shit, and I can read it and, like, and just soak in the pain and just cry. Not really. But I, for whatever reason, I'm, like, a glutton for that kind of thing. And I remember one time I led, I'd done a search for Norm Sherman sucks balls <laughs> just because i was covering my bases you know like somebody could have said that and my girlfriend was like what are you what are you reading and i was like i just see what people are saying about me and she was like your ball sucking ability <laughs> i was like no no just there was nothing about that on the internet fortunately which is awesome you know because it's always good to have your name like that kind of cleared but so your yeah. your ball your ball sucking secrets are uh, are yeah, yeah safe, they're still you know, they're... exactly far underground about 12 <laughs> miles under ancient cursed tombs yeah never to be released on google <laughs> That's, that's good. Yeah, well, that's been awesome talking to you, dudes. I wanted to uh, kind of, I guess, wrap up Convo a little bit about uh, uh, as far as where you see things going with your zines and also uh, your careers, your, your kind of futures. You know, we've, I think one thing we've kind of all pressed on is how our, uh, the generation of, of, of publishers like ourselves and editors now are mostly trying to spend our time thinking outside the box and, and looking at the field of the changing internet and how we can kind of leverage new audiences. And the biggest thing is being adaptable and perceptive to, you know, the, the kind of the lay of the land. But uh, for your for your own, I guess, zines in reaction to that, how, how do you have any kind of future uh, long-term goals and then I guess we can close on kind of short projects like cons and stuff where people are coming up on why don't you start us off Scott I to me it's all about the the sort of niche material I mean I got into this because I love reading that kind of stuff and and that's what sustains me and keeps me going and maybe it's because I'm, I'm sort of an indie DIY uh, type person uh, I, I'm just looking forward to, to keeping publishing great stuff of the of the type I like uh, I'm I'm not a, a, a pioneer or a trailblazer on the technical side like Neil. I'm not great at running a giant empire full of uh, legions of flush readers like John is. <laughs> I'm just sort of you know plugging away in, in my little uh, niche there. I guess like Conan after he's grown up and uh, pushing that uh, mill around or whatever with those tracks. I've worn these tracks pretty deep. So it, I don't know. Maybe I'm not enough of a visionary. Uh, but uh, hopefully the new writers will keep coming through the slush pile. It'll be just as much fun to discover as some of these are moving up the award ballots and are getting into novels and doing less short fiction. Um, I'm very happy with the, the podcasts, uh, the way they're going, uh, and the ebooks. Um, I uh, We do these annual best of ebook anthologies. I did one reprint theme anthology a few years ago. It was steampunk stories from BCS. Uh, I would love to do more of those uh, theme reprint anthologies as uh, opportunities come up. Uh, and we did start a new podcast uh, recently. I think I talked to you about this at Balticon called the BCS Audio Vault. Yeah, it takes good, old yeah. episodes and puts a new intro on them, maybe the author or, a, or another guest uh, introducing it. Um, and that's a cool way to get the back catalog out there. Um, but in, that's not really, you know, pioneering or doing something mm -hmm. uh, brand new. 
so, so I think uh, my future is just completely owning uh, the rut that I've channeled out because I like it, and there's an audience out there uh, that enjoys that kind of work, and there are authors producing that kind of work. Uh, yeah. So I will own that rut as absolutely best I can and keep moving forward. That's definitely. Hey, that's how the Grand Canyon got made, right? <laughs> so I've heard. We kept on making it. In what about? I'm I'm curious, Scott. Fantasy in general, like the future. What does fantasy going to look like a hundred years from now? Is it going to be the halfling on a, a quest? That's a fascinating question. That's a fascinating question. If you had asked me that in 1994, um, of course, uh, Robert Jordan was selling then, but the 80s wave of sort of epic fantasy, like Ray Feist, had kind of started to dwindle. So if you'd asked me that then, I would have said that. Uh, pseudo medieval pseudo they sword there you go pseudo medieval <laughs> sword like epic fantasy as john waves his sword is pretty much dead um but then what happens in 95 here comes george martin and he does perhaps the oldest most common used setting he does it in a new different way that makes it feel amazingly different and fresh it's the same but different um so i think there's always the potential for someone like that to come along and completely refresh or rejuvenate something that's been done before. Um, I think the other thing Martin's done that, that I like even more than the world is put a very deep, strong focus on the characters. Um, and that's actually what I love in, in BCS's short fiction. Uh, and I think that that's a much more subtle uh, a sort of new wave, but to me it's even more important. So if people can come along and do things like that, can completely uh, revamp things, then then who knows? Who knows where it could go? People could be revamping things. Uh, things might converge more with some of the other more popular fantasy media, you know, like Warhammer and, and gaming and things like that, where the fantasy and science fiction seem to be blended in there, and that audience does not mind that at all. Maybe that would, would come into the writing, uh, into the, the prose fiction. Uh, hypertext, who knows? We'll have a generation of people who are used to texting on their phones. What will they what will they write? How will they write it? Will people end up writing purely for, for audio? How will that change? Uh, so maybe it's that the, the view from down here in my rut is really hard to predict, but who knows? I think the sky's really the limit. Yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of like that science fiction. I like a lot of the Stephen Baxter and Asimov stuff where you look at the whole long term of humanity's progression throughout millennia and we become, you know, photons and energy. At what point do we stop becoming human is kind of like the same thing. Like, at what point do you stop become, becoming fantasy? You know, because there is going to be a lot of right. George R. R. Martins who are constantly relooking the field. But at what point are you not fantasy anymore? What, what are the main things that have to kind of stay through there? That's a really good question. And I think part of my view on it is because I'm a scientist, because uh, I'm in Canada. And I have a pretty a pretty rigid view of, of what I consider possible and what I consider don't uh, not possible. So to me, uh, a lot of things are fantastical. I mean, steampunk to me feels like fantasy because if you sit down and figure out the physics of a steam engine, it can't actually carry an airship in the air. It's not possible. So, so it, it's kind of ironic, even though I have a zine that's labeled fantasy and is very much a niche, uh, pretty much all of this stuff to me is fantastical in nature. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to see when things are blended, to see when science fiction is blended. Uh, we've done two theme months in BCS in the past several years of science fantasy, 
Um, stuff kind of like Dune that feels fantastical, but right. has science-ish things in it, laser guns instead of swords. Um, and I love that kind of stuff. So I would love to see them mixed and to see those those barriers that are really artificial sort of demarcations, to see those erode uh, and to see stuff like you see in Warhammer, uh, where it's swords and jetpacks and rockets and whatever, to see stuff like that become just as common as anything else. I think that'd be great. What about, what about you, Neil? Do you have thoughts on science fiction or anything or that line that people like to talk about? Is it fantasy? Is it science fiction? And where's this going? Oh, I don't care what the line is. <laughs> I, I know what I like and I enjoy it and I don't like putting labels on it. Um, yeah. You know, we, we, we call ourselves a science fiction and fantasy magazine since that's a nice big umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you had me uh, go through and say which stories were science fiction and which were fantasy, I would refuse. Um, in fact, the only way for we collect uh, submissions data, we will publish numbers about how many science fiction stories we've received and all of that. And that purely because the authors have told us what they think it is. Mm. Um, so I, I refuse to get involved in in, in that. Uh, it, it seems like a, a wasted time, a wasted time for, yeah. from my perspective. Um, you know, it, it's it's getting bogged down in the details, and I'm much more interested in the story. Do you think that in the future, as, as people try and push the boundaries of all the genres more, that that line is going to blur so much that the distinctions between genre fiction are not going to matter to fans as much, that delineation is going to be a melting pot of kind of things, or are people going to still care about genres and boxes and stuff that they can put things in? Yeah. People have uh, uh, wanted to get rid of the genre labels for a while, and 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 the the actual reality is that they're there for marketing purposes. And as long as we're still trying to sell things, they're going to still be there, and there'll be people arguing about it because that's what they love to do. <laughs> um, and well said. It, it gives them something to talk about. Yeah. Um, but I don't see it going away. I, I think that we'll, the audience will grow. Um, I think it has been growing. I think this is a, a, an excellent time to be a, a, a short fiction uh, editor or reader. Uh, the, the field is very strong and, and, and grow, going off in, in different directions that are still positive. Mm. Um, yeah. So for for me, the, the, the more exciting stuff that's, that's going on is, is uh, how you know, the internet sort of opened us up to the world. Mm. And we've, all these years, we haven't really taken advantage of that. Mm. Um, We have readers all over the place, but um, we haven't really been pulling in authors from all over the place. So I think that's what we're going to start seeing is a more globalization of the, uh, of the field, seeing more works in translation coming over um, and, and more um, actual readership in, in other countries. Right now, Clark's World has about, I would say 70% of uh, its readership centered in the United States and maybe the next 20, 25 focused mostly within um, UK, Canada, and Australia. So I think that we're seeing weird little pockets. Like we, for some reason, there's a, a small pocket of, of podcast listeners in Iran. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that to me is really exciting. And that's where I think the field's going to grow the most is, is, is uh, new blood coming in and it's going to strengthen it a lot. That's interesting. So that is that same reasoning that's got you got doing the Chinese translations on a monthly basis to open up that market, like the, the burgeoning Chinese kind of market, have them more in, involved. 
Well, it, it was an opportunity that presented itself back in April. Um, we had been running a few uh, translations. Um, uh, Ken Liu has done some amazing work in, right. in bringing Chinese stories um, to English speaking markets. And, um, you know, we, we were approached uh, by Storycom to, to see if there was something we could do together. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's spun out from there. And this is just the beginning for, you know, we have, we have, Plans to go further down the line, but um, to to start, we wanted to um, bring in more uh, more stories. The lar- world's largest science fiction magazine is in China. It's not an American magazine. It's SF World, um, and there's a lot of people reading and writing science fiction over there. So I think it's time to take a look. Uh, what we've seen so far has been amazing. Um, and, you know, it, it, I think it was just right place, right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we'll see how it works out. Yeah, that's really exciting, actually. That's interesting and, and very smart, too, to kind of explore that. <clears throat> what about you, John? What's your future? And what's your views on the future of what we do? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I'm hoping to um, I'm hoping to expand the reach of uh, of Lightspeed and and all the other short fiction markets um, with uh, you know via via this best American science fiction and fantasy that I'm doing. Like, yeah. obviously, given that it's uh, American focused, it's not going to be global like like what Neil's talking about. Although mm-hmm. certainly, people all over the world could pick it up and buy it. Um, but I'm hoping to reach more of the American and you know uh, English-speaking readership. You know, get the get so get those mainstream readers uh, who probably would like most of the science fiction that we're publishing, like in, in short fiction, because it's like the te- the stuff we're publishing isn't probably what most people think of as science fiction or fantasy anyway. Like they're thinking of like uh, big blockbuster movies that have lots right. of explosions and guns and stuff. And it's like that's mm-hmm. there's a little bit Godzilla. of that. Which, yeah, there's a little bit of that in science fiction short stories, but not that much. And um, a lot of it. It's like you know, it's barely even genre at all, and mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of it has very lovely prose, just like you would expect to find in in you know anything in the New Yorker or whatever your favorite literary journal is. Um, so I'm really hoping to capture a lot uh, a lot more of that audience. Um, maybe you know expose them to it via the Best American series because that's a brand that they might trust. From you know, because it's been around for you know a hundred years or whatever, and and so they'll try it because it has that brand on it, and they trust it, and um and then you know maybe that'll turn them into into genre readers. Maybe they'll start picking up the magazines, the you know find the places where where the stories in the book came from, and then go check them out. You know that's it's always what I hope will happen with any kind of year's best, but. Um, you know, I don't know how much it actually happens. I'm hoping it'll happen with this one. And, and I mean, since I'm the series editor, I, I have a lot to say in, in in what direction everything goes in. I'm, I'm hoping that I can try to push that and make it like an agenda. If I make it my agenda, mm-hmm. um, maybe maybe I can make that come to fruition. Yeah, well, it's a neat opportunity, and you, and you definitely have a, some competition, I guess, in that category with the year's best. Some people, how, how are, uh, I guess, two parts question, how are, are they giving you, like, one shot with that or a couple shots, or and then also how are you separating yourself from those big the animals that have been around forever, too, that there are competition in that field in the year's best kind of category? Uh, well, Houghton Mifflin uh, agreed to two books up front, and so we're going to do at least two volumes, and then we'll cool. see how it goes. So, I mean, that's fine. Um, yeah. It's actually, uh, I had actually pushed, uh, I had asked my agent to push for more, but then he's like, 
like, no, Lord, no, two is good because then we see how it does, and then maybe we can negotiate for a big, a better deal after that. And then so, and and because you know, he and I were both assuming that like we think that this should do well. Um, uh, and you know, we have Joe Hill as the guest editor for the first right. volume, um, yeah. and we haven't lined up the second volume yet. But um, you know, that's the other thing that will help this series reach more readers is that with the with that model of having me as the series editor. So a lot, you know, the genre people know me already, um, but then um, with the guest editors uh, being somebody who's sort of sort of adjacent to the genre but not really part of it like joe hill i mean he's a horror writer but i mean he's he 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 runs in the mainstream crowd you know right yeah um and so he has reached that um that that most of our other year's best editors don't have and so like people will who are fans of his may pick up the books and then you know whoever we get for the second one it's kind of be the same deal um but uh so yeah i mean you know we have we have two books under contract and and you know i'm working on the first one now um that'll be out in october 2015 so you know it's quite a ways away before um, before it's going to come out, but um, right. it's been really interesting to just sort of devote myself to reading everything that I can find because I've never actually done that where I've really tried to read everything in the field that's published in a year. I mean, I, I certainly tried to keep up with everything, but I've never never done a, as you know ne- never done nearly as much as I as I'm doing with this. So um, it's been really interesting to see um, all the stuff that's out there. Yeah, but that's that's a daunting task you've yeah. set yourself out to is re- reading everything on the internet. I applaud you for that. <laughs> oh well, and, and print as well. So. You know, oh, and print, right? That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a cool opportunity. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with the year's best. You got you got work cut out for you there. That's neat. Yeah. And then Neil's taking over China, and that's a pretty daunting <laughs> task too. So, yeah, and uh, and of course uh, Scott is is digging the Colorado River there. So that's that's <laughs> right. <laughs> well, thanks so much, guys, for this conversation. It's been fun, and uh, I think people are going to love to hear your thoughts on this stuff. Cool. John, are you are you coming to World Fantasy? I am. Oh, okay, cool. So we do so see you there because the three of us are going to be at Capclave, Neil, Scott, and I. Yep. But we're going to see there. But then we'll all see you at World. Are you going, Neil? Are you going to World Fantasy? Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we could have done cool. it then, but it's, it worked out fine <laughs> this way too. So. Yeah. Cool. All right, guys. Well, I wish you a good night. All right. Cool. Cheers. Take care. You too. It's a good night. <laughs>